today's culture. We're not even, we're not even close to this today in our culture. And by the way, we don't probably even need to be. But I wanted to bring out some points tonight about how the, the Celtic culture can speak to our culture today in a postmodern Christianity. In our world today, a lot of it is very consumer-driven, it's very narcissistic, it's very about me, it's about what can I get, it's about how you can serve me and how I can feel better and it's seven steps to a better you and ten steps to a healthier butt and, you know, your, your knees ache, we got a three-step plan for that. I mean, it's all, I mean, you can come up with a seven-step plan, you will probably be a millionaire overnight about how you can improve someone's beard length. I'm not kidding you. It's, there's so many different ways that we try to improve ourselves with outward influences. And a lot of Celtic way was about not just serving yourself, but to serve others so that your self-improvement would become a natural byproduct of your life. That good. Let's roll into this this week. Let me turn this thing on. I got nothing, Colin. Okay. Oh. So you're just going to roll it back there? Nope. Okay. The Celtic way of Christianity. Hey, let, let this quote hit you. Right? Ready? Here we go. Most people really do not believe. Most people do not really believe. They've tried to believe, and they wish they did believe, and they're probably sorry that they don't believe. But they don't. Because they like to be around people who do. So they come to church and enjoy the music and the hallowedness of it all, but the faith is not in them. Thanks. Wow, that went right in the light. Sweet. Okay. Blind luck right there, my friends. Most people don't really believe. Isn't this true? Because if most people really believe, like we say we believe, our whole lives, our whole cultures, our whole cities would be transformed today. But most people, and they feel bad that they don't believe, they just don't believe. They come to church because it's a part of their tradition. We come to church because we feel guilty if we don't. We come to church because our wives are dragging us out you know, of our motorcycle ride that night or whatever. You know, we come to church because that's just what you do. But we really don't believe. We haven't made converts, or converts, we've made consumers. Nobody's really convert. I shouldn't say nobody. A lot of people are not converted, they're just consumers. And you'll keep them happy as long as you can keep their consumerism going. So, so-and-so gathers a group of people that is disgruntled with the pastor and the way he's teaching and perhaps the children's ministry isn't doing as well as they think or they're kind of sick of the worship pastor and you know all his, his uh, songs that he sings and the groundskeepers aren't doing their job and so they come and they form a coup and they kind of complain against what's going on and you know what they do? They basically just pick up and go down to the next church that has a better groundskeeper, maybe a better, a better song leader, maybe a better children's worship pastor, whatever, whatever. Because they're consumers. See, family just doesn't say, oh, I'm mad at you today, so I'm not coming. Family says, I'm mad at you, I'm coming. I can be mad at you and come. I can be mad at you and just stay and hang out and say, let's work on this stuff that's between us. The Celtic way is this. Many of us have adopted a state religion or a version of Christianity. As long as our version of Christianity lines up with my desires and the American dream, then it must be right. In other words, if 
if my pocketbook's full and my mortgage is paid and I get to get the dream house, then that my religion must be right. See, this doesn't really preach in India. I've been there. This doesn't really preach in Mongolia. This doesn't really preach in Brazil. This really doesn't preach in Chile. This really doesn't preach just about anywhere in the world except for the United States. As long as our version of Christianity lines up with my narcissistic consumerism, then it must be right and everybody else must be wrong. So much of what we believe has been taught through the lens of individualism and independence. So much of what... See, that's why it's hard for the American church to make disciples. Because making disciples means that you have backyard barbecues with strangers. Making disciples means you have people over to your living room that you don't know and you, you strike up a card game. Making disciples means you invite somebody over or out to Costco and food sample all Saturday afternoon. I don't know, but it, it means getting out of individualism and making an effort to touch someone outside of your circle of comfort. It's hard for Americans to do this. Am I preaching to the choir tonight or what? Right? It's hard for Americans to be a discipling-making church. So instead of that, we've hired hirelings to do it for us. So I'll say, hey, uh, Pastor Donovan, I'll give you, well, right now I'll give you nothing, but I'll give you, you know, 200 bucks a week to come and disciple our teenagers. And all the parents are like, Pastor Donovan's awesome, and he is. And I love what he's doing with our kids, and he does. And he's making, yes, he's making disciples, but his job is not just to fulfill disciple-making in the youth. His job is to make youth who are making disciples. And so our message to one another and to others is that we are here not to just heap up big ministry numbers, not to just fill a building, but rather to create an environment where it's okay to say, you know what, there are about 50, 60 people, but we're learning how to make disciples. It's hard, it's tedious, it's long-term. It's a mustard seed, not a squash. It's a red oak, not a willow. It takes time. That was always my dream. Even when I was a youth pastor, I said, youth, let's not go bowling every night and think that that's going to save your marriage when it comes to the struggles of finances and the, the conversation of divorce. What's going to sustain you after this time? Let's talk about that. Let's get rooted in the Word of God. Let's get rooted in fellowship. Let's get rooted in discipleship. It's tough. How about this? The faith that is in many church attendees is as much an American folk religion as Christianity. Their focus tends to be consumerist. What is in it for me? Moralistic. I've got to live by the rules. Therapeutic. I want peace of mind and happiness. Deism. Yikes. Is this resonating with you? I mean, it's kind of the culture that Americanism has. It's really Americanism. Anytime you put an ism, and you know, an American is not bad. I'm not preaching against Americans tonight. But when we start putting isms at the end of our words, then it becomes wrong. You know, tribes are good. Tribalism is bad. Denominations aren't necessarily bad. Denominationalism, that's kind of bad. In other words, when I'm right and everybody else is wrong, anybody ever come from that culture? Okay, I'm the only, yeah, yeah. The Celtic way. The Celtic approach to the formation of Christians is indeed an enduring treasure. It is our once and future source. Isn't that good? So what the author's saying is this is once good and it's future good. In other words, it worked then, it'll work now. 
And it's the way that we always will preach this, and I hope we get this in our spirits, is that we are going to be a culture of a church that lets you belong before you believe. Now, I know churches will even make an ism out of that. It's belongism before you believeism. And, you know, they'll, they'll put an article out, you know, come all gays and lesbians and LGBTs, and, and that just becomes their focus, and, it's, and now it's, it's, even that can become an ism. Does that make sense? But if you just say it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire and you actually have your act together, or if you are a druggie and you don't have a hope, both belong. Isn't that good? Because we can make our focus so jacked up that we get off track and all of a sudden we've lost our way and we swing the pendulum back this way again, right? The history of the church. The Celts were not trying to tell you how to be a Christian as much as they were trying to equip you to be a Christian. What do you think of that? It's not about trying to, to, about the how. The how says, you know, do the Romans road, get baptized, come to church every day, make sure you're tithing. Um, you know, that, that's the how. And, we, and Romans were really good at making lists, by the way. We're very, we're very Roman in our, in our culture. We make lists. Well, we're going to do a list tonight, so I'm screwed. Anyway, but we're, we're very good at, make, at making lists, right? And uh, Celts and Jews and Hebrews, they always thought in 3D circles and pictures and comic strips. That's how they, that's how they saw life. These spirals. It's like a... Anybody remember the spiral graph thing? Yeah, wasn't that awesome? I don't know why it's popped in my head, but I love that thing. Except, you know, when you would go round and round and round and your paper would rip. And the whole, yeah, 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 thank you. Okay, so speaking of lists, 10 things Celts would tell us today. Number one, church leaders cannot do it for people through preaching harder, scheduling more prayer meetings and retreats, or making all other attempts to do it for people through more and better programming. Moses said this, hey, I'm going to the mountain. Who wants to go with me? Oh, heck no. Hey, I'm getting good. I didn't cuss one time last week. That was Right? Well, we had visitors. Anyway. <laughs> hey, look at the preachers. Though. We have led lazy Christians into the wilderness of mediocrity. Christians are responsible for their own spiritual development. We've led Christians into a spiritual mediocrity so that it's your job. You know, Moses said, come to the mountain. We're the tent. You We stay. You got to go hear what the Lord says for us, and uh, we're because we're scared. And Moses said, "No, this is an invitation for a nation to be birthed. This is a wedding invitation for you to come to be transformed in the presence of God. Come! No, 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 no. It's good. We're not altogether different than we are back then, are we? As just human beings, we say the same thing. Pastor, you go for us. You go get our bread for us. You, you make me feel good today." If I can feel good walking out of the service, and by the way, I'm not here to make you feel miserable. That would, although sometimes I do, I'm sure. God, I wish you'd shut up. <laughs> I don't know, maybe not. Our job is, as leaders and as Christians and as pastors is to not develop lazy Christians and lead them into the land of mediocrity. But rather to, the Bible says this clearly in Ephesians, that we are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Problem, yes, know your why. Problem is, there's not a whole lot of paycheck connected to that, and I'm just speaking to the elephant in the room. Come on, somebody. Well, we're paying you to do this. 
That is an Ezekiel warning, my friends. Ezekiel said, Woe to the shepherd who fleeces his sheep. And we got a lot of that going on today. Our job as pastors and lay people, and that's why, that's why by the way, I love having other speakers speak at a random and me sitting in a chair listening from them. I'm learning, and hopefully you're learning from other voices. Hey, by the way, Carl is going to teach Tuesday night. Isn't that fun, guys? So Tuesday night's Books and Brews. Carl's going to bring 1 Corinthians 13. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. Number two, what would Celts say? They would probably counsel us to relinquish the illusion that Gutenberg's printing press produced a panacea. What does that mean? That because all the was so readily available to everybody that it solved all the problems. That every problem now is solved. Well, look at the American Bible Society says this. And Americans have an extensive access to the Bible. 88% of households own at least one copy with most owning multiple copies averaging 4.4 Bibles in their homes. If, the, if every, everybody in the world had a Bible, the Bible doesn't... Ooh, my Baptist roots are just kicking right now. The Bible alone, let's put it that way, cannot transform your life unapplied. I, I can't osmosisly sleep on... Did I say that enough? Just kind of... All right, never mind. Uh, the Bible alone cannot transform your life, cannot unapply transform your life. Obviously by the renewal of our mind, by the spiritual bread of the word of life. Ah, yes, we do. But there's 4.4 Bibles of multiple translations and versions and colors and, and, and widths and sizes and notes and cross-references in our homes today. I probably have 12 myself. That does not change me into a moral person. It doesn't change me into a more spiritual, disciplined individual. Does that make sense? Because the Chinese are blowing it up, baby. And pass on Psalms 1. And you know what they do with it? They memorize it. That's a great picture tonight. Colin told us that uh, Jewish boys at six years old would go into their, uh, what do they call it? The, whatever. And um, they'd go in there and the priest would cover the scrolls or the tablets with honey. And a six-year-old was told to lick it off. As an illustration that the Word of God will always be honey to your lips and sweetness to your soul and good for you. Honey is fascinating. My wife always gets sick of me talking about honey. You know it's the only food that never rots? Ever? Ever? Archaeologists uh, grabbed some bases. Did you know that, Laura? Beth? No? Yeah. Okay, so archaeologists have grabbed bases from Egyptian tombs that was filled with honey that was still good. Doesn't, it never rots. It never goes away. So that makes sense, right? Hey, if the Word of God is like honey to my lips and goodness to my soul, then it never goes bad. That's what I'm talking about. It's the once and future. It was good then, it's good now. But it doesn't mean that just because we have a printing press that printed off a bunch of Bibles for us, that we're now going to be a revived nation. If that were the case, it would have happened a long time ago. Celts understood this. The Celts not only read the Bible, they consumed it in their soul and they hid it in their heart that they might not sin against God. Number three, they would counsel us to relinquish the illusion that a brief daily devotional each morning in which we, in which 
say people read a snippet of Scripture, a brief reflection, and a short prayer, all on one page of the Upper Room Devotional Guide will shape great souls. Mm. So, you know, what I thought of was uh, by every, you know, bathroom I've grown up in was what? We don't know, but I bet you can guess. The daily bread. My daily bread. I remember as a teenager even, you know, going to the bathroom and there it was. I'm like, well, it's here. I might as well go ahead and get my religious activity in for the day. And I would just consume the daily bread as quickly as possible or the Reader's Digest version of whatever, you know, was laying around. And uh, that, was my, that was my intake. See, guys, if we're going to develop a discipling culture, it's going to take a lot more than just a snippet or a little track or uh, something like that to change our lives, change our souls. It doesn't work that way. Long lost are the times gathered studying and meditating on the Word. This is why in our books and brews, I absolutely love dissecting the book of 1 Corinthians. So many, I don't know, 12, 13 years, we've been doing life group and, and small group some, at some form. And uh, I, I, I don't remember one time in all that time that we actually took a book of the Bible and just dissected it and ate it and chewed it up and spit it out. It was always a book. It was always somebody else's opinion. And we went through so many books. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with doing a book study. It's fine. But man, sometimes you've got to get into the Word of God and say, wow, I never realized it said that. And you break that fresh bread open and you smell it. And you're like, oh my God, this is, this is life transforming. This is amazing. Number four, not even three scheduled times of prayer a day can make for powerful, spiritual, uh, powerful Christian spirituality. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It means that, as Michael has taught us and is teaching us, that we are prayer, that we become prayer, that even though the Celts were very disciplined in their prayers, and, and by the way, they would, they would have scheduled times for prayer where the whole village would just simply stop. You know, stop what you're doing. This, it's prayer time. We're going, to, we're going to talk to the Father. We're going to make sure that we make that time for the Father. But the Celts would tell us today that not even three times a day of disciplined prayer, whether it was a half an hour or an hour, can make spiritually disciplined kids. You must become prayer. It doesn't really matter, guys, if you're at work, right? I mean, you bathe yourself in the presence of the Father and you recognize His presence with you at all times. That is becoming prayer. When He said, teach us to pray, you know, the disciples have said, hey, teach us to pray, God. And God says, okay, our Father which art in heaven, recognize where He is. Hallowed be thy name. Yep, you're holy. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, heaven comes to earth. Earth doesn't go to heaven. Heaven is constantly prayed to earth. Number five, pray with your eyes open, fixating on something in God's creation to remind us of His greatness. Although we never really think about it, the Roman way of prayer was reverent and quiet with closed eyes. Celts believed in an open-eyed prayer life, always aware of God's eternal presence with us and inviting to have conversation with Him on all occasions. Now you might like, well, what's the big deal? So now you're telling us all that we've got to pray with our eyes open? No. It's, it was, it's awkward. I'll be honest with you. I mean, when we pray, I naturally want to close my eyes, bow my head, and fold my hands. I've just been taught that. That's how we've been taught. The Celts, however, lived a very aware life. So they would look at creation, 
fixate on something in creation that would remind them of God's glory and his uniqueness and his preciousness and his greatness and his, his intimacies and his beauties. And they would fixate on that and that drove the direction of their prayer, not their ne necessarily their need or their, or their desires or their you got to make me happy, blah, 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 blah. That's, that's, why the, that's why you guys might know that's what the clover is associated with St. Patrick, right? Because he saw the clover and he said that is a representation of the Trinity. It is one that is three. And he looked at his finger and he's like, oh, that's a representation of the Trinity. It's one, but there's one, two, three joints that make it work. Oh, fascinating. And he did something like that in God's creation that would bring about this amazing revelation of who God was in his prayer life. Open prayer Open-eyed prayer life. Open-eyed. Try it. I tried it tonight for about 10 minutes and I closed my eyes. So, <laughs> Hey, man, it's hard to break those Roman... Those Roman there's, by the way, there's nothing wrong with closing your eyes. Okay? I'm not saying, oh, man, you're gonna... No, I'm saying it's, it's different. Open your eyes and pray. Invite God into every situation because God is everywhere. And if you open your eyes, maybe you'll begin to see him in different ways that you never thought of before. And I also think this, that when you open your eyes, you tend to focus on other things other than your own problems. You know, the Bible says this, that your prayers have already answered even before you ask them, that God knows what you need. So you then, why pray? It's not, it's not why pray, it's what pray. God's creation and his beauty drives then our conversation to a place that you and I probably wouldn't go if we're introspectively uh, leading. Does that make sense? Number six, harness your imagination in your life ocean with God. God is before, behind, above, and beneath us. Use your imaginative, creative mind to sense His presence always. Remember, this is what the Celts would tell us today. Hey, this still works. I know in your postmodern culture, your independence, individualism, and we're taught, I mean, that kind of grates us. Like, you don't talk about my independence. I mean, men bleed for my independence. Yes, 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 I know. And I'm an American. And I love it. And I love America. And if I had a flag, I'd be waving it. I believe me. But being an American doesn't make me a true Christian. Does, does that make sense? Being an American doesn't even make me a good disciple maker. I've got, I've got, I've got built-in prejudices that I have to get over because I'm an American to make disciples. We went to a uh, um, barbecue joint in Alabama. It's called Big Bob Gibson's. It is the best, oh, the best barbecue in the, in the world. Not Maybe not in the world, but it was really good. And for Alabama, it was good. Their sweet tea was like you could pour it on your pancakes. <laughs> That's how good it was. And the ice, in the sweet tea was the small, tiny, squared ice that you could just chew on all day and just watch the enamel of your teeth go into your testes. It's, I mean, that's, that's how good it was. How good it was. Big Bob Gibson's had this theory, and it's a little bit like Rudy's down here on the west side, but a little, little, little bit more prominent, that people could sit wherever you want at any time, even if there was somebody sitting at that table. So let's say, you know, you three are out for dinner and Let's say there's two more seats filled. I mean, somebody would come with their tray and go, hey, y'all. How y'all doing? And you're like, dude, don't, what are you sitting here for? Don't you know this is our family? But they took for granted that they could be part of your family too. 
Hey, it's a southern, I don't maybe it is a southern way. But all the tables were set up that way. The culture was, and you felt like invaded. Oh my God, don't come over here, don't come over here, don't come You know, it's like when you're sitting on a Southwest flight. Oh my God, oh my God. Oh my God, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. Whew. You know, it's the big mountain man Matt guy that walks by. Now, obviously we love mountain man Matt, but that guy. And there's only a middle chair available. Oh, no, 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 no. See how big I am? You're going to be uncomfortable sitting here. And you wait for that little petite, you know, probably girl. Oh, good. You're 12? Great. Hey, weirdo, stop looking at my daughter. I just want somebody I can sit by that I don't have to rub shoulders with. It's, it's individualism. I don't want you in my space. I don't want you at my table. I don't want you sitting next to me. I want you to leave me alone. It's, that's a built-in prejudice. Am I lying? I mean, that's the truth, right? Man, if I can get a, if I can get a seat. And I told Teresa we're flying to Indiana this week, and I said, I just can't wait just to sit by you. I just want to sit by you. I want to sit by a window and you next to me and not worry about it, right? Individualism. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But you're little. See, somebody wants to sit by you. Somebody say, yeah. <laughs> All right. We've got to harness our imagination, allow God to permeate every area of our life because God is wanting to permeate every area of your life. Here's another weird thing. If you ever go to India, men like to hold hands. No. I don't want to... Sorry. I don't want to hold your hand. So I, here I am, you know, and it, you gotta be the right, it's got to be the right hand too, right? So I don't know how that works. So um, we're walking out of a car. A friend of mine and I, he's a pastor in India, and uh, we're, going to, we're going into a church meeting, and, um, you know, and his, his pastor, Hanuk, great guy. I, mean, I love this man. I've been, I've been to India three times and, and uh, just spent some time with him and his family. They're great people. Anyway, so we get out of the car. Yeah, it's been a long day. If you ever, if, there's no short days in India, by the way. They're all long days. You know, it's hot. It's muggy. There's, there's smog everywhere. It's just crazy, but it's a wild adventure as well. So we get out of this little, you know, Jeep thing. And Pastor Hanuk grabs my hand. I'm like, ah, oh, how, how long is this going to last? You know, it's that weird feeling you get in your throat right before you're about to throw up. That, I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, I'm holding hands with a man walking up to church. I have never felt more uncomfortable in my life. I mean, it's like my knees started knocking together. I mean, I couldn't help but start walking pigeon-toed. I mean, it was just weird. I got so weirded. I, he got in my space. That's a built-in prejudice that I, as an American, have had to get over for that 100-yard walk to the church. And, it, do you ever, and, and it's like, you know, you give them a hint. Okay, that's good. We're, we're good, right? And you give them that hint, and they, Indians don't take hints. You know, they just, nope, I'm hanging on, baby. Okay. <laughs> your imagination. God is everywhere. God is in us. God wants to be in us, in you, in uh, everything. Number seven. They would recommend that every believer have an anamkara, that is a soul friend. When you have a friend that you can be vulnerable with, honest with, and always feel unjudged, then you have a precious gift indeed. 
You know, when you can come and descend to the table, somebody that you love, somebody that can just understand you, somebody that you can just pour your heart out to and you know, I don't, I don't have to be afraid here. I can be here. I can, I can be vulnerable here. This friend will not judge me. He will not make an decisive judgment against me. He will love me, honor me, pray for me, cheer me on. In the middle of my mess, this friend will be with me. Everybody needs that. Everybody needs an Amkara. Somebody you can just say, I need your time. I need someone to talk to. I've got to descend to the table. Friend. The Celts would tell us this today, that because we're individualistic, because we're independent, we don't want to be vulnerable. See, that's a side issue. That's a, that is a, a byproduct of being an individual-ism. Uh, independence-ism, right? It's, it's part of our culture, our preconceived judgments that are already built into us that we've got to get over. That we, that's okay to trust somebody. That it's okay to say, man, I am so uncomfortable right now, but can I trust you? Jonathan and David is one of the best relationships that we can point to as some sort of realistic anamkara that we can lean on. Although there was even political tension there, they're still able to be incredible friends. Number eight, a weekly meeting or a bi-weekly meeting is a must. There has to be a place to meet with peers on all levels those who can cheer you on, grieve with you, intercede with you, confide with you, and share life with you. This is why, you know, we're like, hey, we got to have, you know, eh, let's do life groups. But life group is, for the purpose of it, it's not just to stand around and get together and drink brew. Although that's a, that's a great time for the guys to get together. And the ladies are getting together being real and honest and vulnerable and learning from other teachers. And I mean, it's awesome. They're, they're, they're connecting on a level that they never... And they're learning from other women. And women are pouring into our girls. That is what we need. We need that. The Celts would come and say, this is a non-negotiable in your life. You've got to get with some peers every other week, every week, so that you can be held accountable. Not only be held accountable, but someone could say, how's your week? Oh my God, uh, it sucked. Oh dude, well, well tell us about it. I tell them, well, here we go, it's going to consume the whole time. It's okay. We're here for you. Let's cheer you on. Let's encourage you to pray for you. It, it, I, think, I think for the guys, you know, guys when they, when they come to uh, Books and Brews, they're like, Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. Right? I'm so glad I'm here. There's sometimes I don't want to go. <laughs> it's in my basement. I'm like, you guys run with it. I'm going to go upstairs and I don't know, play Pac-Man. I you know something. I just don't want to be here tonight. But anyway, the guys encourage And then when we get together, there's this natural, uh, natural sort of... Sort of um, thing that happens, this, this, this bonding, this, this joy that happens in my basement. It's amazing. Put my finger on it. It's a story being written. And you know it's going to be good, and you can hear snippets of it being played, and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, that is going to be good. You know, it's like ode to joy. You know it's not the whole symphony, but that part is awesome. Number nine. The purpose of spiritual life, uh, this is going to be good, the purpose of spiritual life, I think, is not to reinforce original sin or to become self 
a self-contemplating culture, but rather to be reminded that we are created in the image of God to help us remember to be pulled out of our self-centeredness and eventually forget ourselves. This is what they would tell us. The purpose of a spiritual development is not to remind you how bad you are all the time, but it's rather to pull you out of that self-centered negativity and remind you that you really don't even matter because God in you is everything. So we, we as uh, good Reformed you know, people have been always, always been taught, you, you suck, you are bad, you are evil inerrantly, you're not beautiful, you're broken, you're disgusting, you need Jesus. Yes, we need Jesus. The flip side of that is in your, you're inerrantly beautiful, you're inerrantly put together, you're inerrantly perfect because God is perfect and He puts you that way. And even in your sin, and this is hard for us, you know, good Calvinistic people to get our brains around, that even in your sin, you're beautiful. See all my prejudices? They're already built in. All my tendencies tend toward a certain thought process, tend toward a certain teaching, tend toward... Because, you know, if you're raised that way, that you're inherently bad, and you need to become good somehow through a prayer then you strive for something that already was, but you don't know you had it. And you strive for something that already is, but you don't know how to be it. Because you're trying to please a system and not the Creator who's already created you to be who you are. Does that make sense? We can easily become navel-gazers, never getting, into, never getting over our own selves, it can become like a man planting a flower and pulling it up every day to see if the roots are still growing. Hey, I'm watering this thing. Ooh. It doesn't make any sense. We are. Our job, and, and our, not our jobs, our, our desire, our, 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 our privilege is to be a part of something that says, man, this whole spiritual development thing, this is, it's It's good. Because it allows me to get out of my own self and eventually forget me. I can forget me. I can, that's why I said today, when you pray with your eyes open, it's, it changes things. Because now you're not thinking of all of your needs and your wants and your desires and your problems. And you begin to outwardly focus your prayer and you lift up the name of Jesus. And you notice the sunrise and you notice the sun. And you notice the beauty of the mountains. By the way, prayer here is the easiest I've ever experienced. Prayer in Colorado Springs rocks, man. It's hard to look at smokestacks and steel mills and go, oh, look at the glory of God today. Wow, look at that iron ore being pumped out over Lake Michigan. That is just awesome. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. It's hard. You know, and you figured all the linemen in northwest Indiana would figure out how to put a telephone pole straight. They don't. They don't know how. So all the poles are like, you know, it's like this weird 1936, I don't know, movie, right? Number 10. The main reason for discipleship is to become more like Christ. It's really not about you, your needs, your happiness, your goals, your influence, or your life. It's about laying down your life so that the first fruits of Jesus can come alive in you. That's what we talked about in Easter, by the way, that Jesus was the first fruits of a universal harvest, Right? Probably not going to find that in Seven Easy Steps to Become a Happier You. <laughs> Maybe that's our next book. It's not about you. Seven steps to become not you. Seven steps to descend to death. Fantastic. That'll be a bestseller. 
we, uh, we've, we, you know, we're talking about this stuff, and I guess tonight I just wanted to make sure that we all knew that this is still relevant. The Celtic way, as, as we've discovered, it's different. It's long before you believe versus believe before you belong. You know, praying with your eyes open, that's weird, that's different. Celebrating Easter on the right day, I mean, that's kind of a big deal to them. Welcoming sojourners, becoming part of their family, I mean, strangers. Uh, remember that? Because when, you were, when I was a clothed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. Jesus said, he's like, well, when did we see that? When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Not stand with me tonight. It's kind of fun. We, uh, next week I'll be out of town, but um, Harlan's going to be bringing some shucking corn. I, um, I was going to say Iowa style, but it's New Mexico style. <laughs> hey, I just want to encourage you. It's a lot to digest. I'm not, I'm expecting like tweet it all and all that, but you know, it's, it's good. We need to, and, and, and by the way, this is, you understand, this has to be like talked about a lot. Talked about in our life group. It's talked in our, I think we've landed on a word we're going to call everything. It's called community life. You guys like that? Okay. Well, that's what I did, so there you go. <laughs> uh, our community life is, is coming together in community and is sharing life together. I mean, I couldn't sum it up any easier. Community life. So whether it's books and brews or ladies' night or, or whatever, uh, we are together in community and it's, and it's life. It's life-giving. That has to be talked about in those places. The way we disciple one another, it has to become part of our language. It has to be like, it's okay. It's slow. It's methodical. It's, it's sometimes frustrating. But you know what? It's family. And family isn't perfect. Family isn't always on, like we got our act together and we got everything's just popping all, all cylinders. Family can be messy. Family's family, but it's family. And every person that walks through the doors, our goal is to make you feel like family. We want to make sure you feel like this is a place you belong. Not on Saturday nights necessarily, but throughout the week, right? You know that if your pastor pops in and sees you at work, it's like, oh man so awesome you're here. Right? That's family. That's what we want. It's a lot. I know. It's a lot. But uh, take time. Digest it. Get into your spirits. And let me encourage you tonight. In Jesus' name, Father, we pray to you tonight. You already know our needs before we ask them. Father, look around the room. It's okay. You can and family and this room is just absolutely gorgeous we pray and sing the prayer or sing the song show me your glory look around my friends look at the glory of God the glory of God is in a life transformed the glory of God is in a marriage restored the glory of God is in children that have come home the glory of God is in is in, is in relationships that are thriving the glory of God is in healed bodies. The glory of God is in restored finances. The, re the glory of God is all around us. Father, for the glory of God, for the glory of yourself that you put in this room, we give you praise. We honor you. We worship you. I'm going to encourage you tonight.
In Jesus' name, I pray that you'd be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Know that this is a place you can belong before you believe. It's a place where you can feel part of a family before, you know, maybe you feel like an orphan. You don't have to. You do not have to. Come to the table. Break bread with us. Dine with us. Drink wine with us. We love you. God loves you. You're beautiful.